Pace Line is supported by LEL Cycling. The coast is calling. LEL's shore collection embodies the spirit and style of the California coast. All LEL products are crafted in Southern California for shipment worldwide. Now, on to the show. Hi, everyone. It's Celine Yeager, co-host of the Paceline podcast, a podcast on two wheels brought to you each week by me and my co-host Patrick Brady of Red Kite Prayer. This week for a tandem episode of the Paceline, I sat down with Shannon Bufton, owner and operator of Cirque Cycling. Cirque Cycling is a cycling club, titanium bike manufacturer, and adventure outfitter based in Beijing that runs multi-day cycling trips throughout remote parts of Asia. Bufton recently masterminded a special cycling trip to Mount Everest, where he and his crew pulled off the first ever Everesting on Mount Everest. If you've never heard of Everesting, the idea is somewhat diabolical, but pretty simple. You ride up and down the same hill continuously until you climb the height of Mount Everest. And on August 8th, just before midnight, one of his supported riders, J.J. Zhou, a Hong Kong-based cyclist, did it. He completed 177 laps of the one-kilometer, 5% climb to the base camp of Mount Everest in Tibet, racking up more than 29,000 feet of vertical gain over the 26 and a half hours of riding time, 40 hours total time, it took them to accomplish this feat. This was Bufton's second attempt to Everest on Everest. He made the first attempt back in October. His crew for that attempt included his friend Andy Van Bergen, the man who founded the concept of Everstein. But relentless headwinds, extreme cold, and altitude sickness, the base camp sits more than 16,000 feet above sea level, forced them to pull the plug after 20 hours. I sat down with Shannon via Skype to talk about his adventures and what Everstein on Everest is like. If I sound a little obsessed during our conversation, it's because I am. I invite you to take a look at some of the images of that journey and that magnificent road that they traveled on before tuning in. You'll be a bit obsessed, too. I hope you enjoy the show. I have to say that I have been obsessed with that Tibetan Plateau Road. Um, I've been obsessed with all of it since our conversation. (laughs) So it's just that it's so captivating. That road looks so amazing. Yeah, it, um, it it has that effect on people. I I remember the first time that I saw it, um, it was by chance in uh, 2015. Um, we, we've been running trips since 2014 to Tibet, and um, the second year we went there, our driver said, oh, I'm going to take you a different way to Everest Base Camp this year. And we were like, what different way? There's only one road in there. And then um, he turned uh, he turned left onto this road, and uh, it was newly paved, and it was an engineering marvel, and it was just it just blew my mind. And um, as a cyclist, I was sitting sitting in the bus going uh, around the switchbacks, yeah, up to the top, and then down the switchbacks to the other side. Something like 120 switchbacks on that road. And I was just. It is unbelievable, yeah. It's um, and and it's also, you know, it, it's a road that goes into this iconic location, Everest Base Camp, and mm-hmm. um, it's got to be, I think it's got to be up there amongst the best uh, roads for a cyclist to to ride anywhere in the world, with the iconic Everest at the end, and and then just the 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 scenery of the Himalayas in the background, and then and then that road with all its switchbacks. It's a pretty, uh, pretty uh, in- enticing road. Once you've got it in your head, it's hard to get it out. <laughs> I, I believe me. I mean, I can't even imagine your experience of it because, seriously, I, I, I'm not being hyperbolic, though I'm prone to hyperbole. I, I, those images, I cannot get them out of my head. Every time I, I see an image of the, those that road, I'm just. Look at that road. I'm just, I'm, I'm captivated by it. It's, it's, uh, yeah. There's something about it, right? There's just something magical about it for 
lack of a better word. Yeah, absolutely. And um, and then when you combine that also with the high altitude, yeah, um, which uh, uh, we sort of, sort of call it a sort of you, you get to a state of nirvana, which I think is really just complete exhaustion and a little bit delirious <laughs> um, from the high altitude. Um, but when you ride up there, uh, up those passes, they're um, 25, 30 kilometers long, um, usually around about 1,000 meters of elevation. Um, so by the time you get to the top, you're in, um, you're in a pretty interesting state. And um, the scenery, high altitude, and, and the climb, the kind of rhythm of the climb itself puts you into this um, transformative sort of state, which um, even adds more to the, uh, to the experience than you're just riding your average uh, climb at home. I, I, can only, I can only imagine. So, so I'm going to, because I have to ask, I mean, everybody can hear from your accent that you are from down under, you are Australian. How did you get so actively involved in, in China and in, in cycling in China? Uh, that's a good good question. I've um I've been here for almost ten years, and okay. I first arrived in China working as an architect. Oh, okay. And um, through that experience, I got to travel all around the country. And um, first of all, I saw that there was uh, this great association here with the bicycle. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the bicycle is a utilitarian vehicle for getting around. And then okay. I was also seeing amazing scenery in different parts of the world like the west in Sichuan and um, up north um, near Mongolia uh, all the way down south um, in Yunnan there's all these different uh, provinces of China that have amazing scenery and they're also under this um, big uh, construction program building new roads everywhere so I thought this would be a great place to get involved with you know, recreational um, and and racing cycling because I can see the the potential here and the connection with the bicycle from the past. So that's so that's how I started. So were you? I know that you also um, designed titanium bikes and, and carbon wheels. Uh, the Cirque Tai Adventure bike on your side is, is so beautiful. Were you designing bikes at that at that point too when you were there as an architect? Uh, no, we, we, we started out um, organizing a lot of events um, based here. We're based here in Beijing, so we started out organizing cycling events. We started with Alley Cats. Um, oh, cool. And then started organizing. We, yeah, yeah. I mean, and you should come here and try and do an, an Alley Cat in, in Beijing City where you have 20 million people. And, I can't even cars going everywhere and dogs and cats and old ladies and all sorts of stuff. It's a pretty gnarly place to um, to run an alley cat. But uh, what I've, eventually we stopped doing that after one guy hit a car and ended up in hospital and we thought maybe that's not such a good idea to be organizing these sort of places. Um, he was okay in the end. I mean, when, when the guy woke up, his first question was, oh, I was, uh, I was in the lead. If that stupid car didn't come in, in front of my path, I would have won. And we were worried that he was he was going to wake up and um, and want to uh, sue us for uh, organizing such a silly event. Um, like a true cyclist, but, right? Uh, like well, I was winning, and how's my bike? And like yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we um, we started organizing events in Beijing, and and now we're predominantly a, a bicycle um, club. In Beijing, we organize rides out in the mountains every weekend, and um, we organize uh, what we call frontier cycling trips all around China and also into Central into Central Asia. And then we have a, a range of products that are, uh, we have titanium bikes that are the sort of ideal bikes to ride on these type of adventures. Oh, interesting. They're, um, yeah, well-made, well um, not easy to break, comfortable, um, and uh, also, I guess, good looking. Oh, that 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 is a beautiful bike. I I will put it up on the site because that I thought that's just like you know, titanium sort of had its day, right? And then I feel like it fell out of favor for whatever reasons. Um, maybe it got 
scarce at some point. I, I, I can't wait. You know, light speed. There was a there was a time Merlin's that that the titanium was the thing, and you, you see fewer of them now. But I always thought that a good titanium bike kind of sang to you. Like some of them could be dull, but if you had the right titanium bike, it was almost musical. And I don't know if I'm describing the, the quality of the ride in any way that makes sense, but that's that was my experience with it. So it's interesting that you're, that you're doing titanium, I think. It's just, you don't see a lot of that anymore. Hello? Yeah. Oh. I think titanium is making a big, big comeback. Um, more and more people are interested in you know, having a product that uh, lasts a long time that they can you know, safely travel with without worrying about it uh, yeah. being being cracked or damaged in transport. And titanium bikes do ride really well, and they're they're sort of a bike a bike for life. So mm -hmm. once you get on one and you ride it, it's very hard to go back to um, to a carbon bike because you you just you fall in love with uh, the the feel of titanium, and at the end of a long ride, you you're still feeling good enough to want to keep riding further, and at the end of the day, that's um, right. that's what it's all about. For sure. So I, I want to I want to go back to some of your um, your Asian Himalayan adventures in a little more depth, but but we have to we need to talk Everstein because because of what uh, what you you've done over the past couple of years. Everstein on Everest, it's, it's been it's been pretty fascinating to watch. So I, I have, for those people who are who are not in the know, um, Everstein is when you ride up and down the same incline as many times as it takes to accumulate the vertical elevation of Mount Everest, which I can speak in feet is like twenty nine thousand feet in meters. Help me out, eight thousand. Eight thousand eight hundred forty eight. A long way, long day. It's it's uh, diabolical. It's 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 an insane thing to do, and as we've mentioned, these gentlemen uh, attempted it on this road to the base camp in Everest, and and then finally succeeded very very recently. So I have two questions for you: Have you Everested before this this trip, and had you been to Everest before uh, that you and Andy and the, the the crew tried Everstein on Everest the first time. Uh, yeah, I'll answer the, the second part of the question first. So okay. I've I've been uh, since uh, since 2014 on our trips. I've been going to Everest. So I okay. think uh, I've been there seven times, and I'm leaving on Sunday for my eighth trip there. Okay. Um, so I've been there many times and was quite aware of um, what the what the conditions were were like, um, and also pretty awe inspired by by the mountain itself and and the kind of adventure feats that had taken um, place before on that in that part of the world. Yeah. And um, in terms of everything, I did one in Beijing, uh, I think early last year. So I had um, I had the experience of doing one before we we attempted it at Everest. Okay. And um, that was, how long that was did that hard. one take you? Oh, I think it was close to twenty hours. Um, we thought it would be much less, but with an Everesting, you always uh, it always is much harder than you ever you ever think it would be. Was that at altitude too? No, it was just at, at sea level here in Beijing. So. Oh, it's amazing. Uh, okay, right. Yeah. So in, in preparation for the the first attempt, uh, I read I read the story, and it was it was it was fascinating reading about the altitude training that you were doing. It, it sounded so miserable, you know, being on a being on a watt bike anywhere sounds miserable, but let alone in an altitude chamber. And am I correct that it was like eleven percent oxygen? Can you t can you talk a little bit about? Like what that is like, like what that that kind of altitude is like, and and what it what it feels like, and what you were trying to prepare for. Okay, um, I think that uh, the the altitude training in the center was done by Andy and and Till, the other two people who attempted with me. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't actually do well, that. You didn't do um, it. Okay. I, 
I didn't do it. I mean, we, um, I, last year I spent something like, uh, 35 days riding at altitude on our trips because all Fair three enough. of the trips we did in China are all at high altitude. So I had quite a bit of high altitude. Right. High you didn't need to go into a chamber. You didn't need camp. to torture yourself into that. You were actually doing rides at altitude. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. But in terms of, I can tell you what it's like riding at that altitude. Um, essentially, you have at 5,000 meters, you have half the available oxygen um, that you you have at uh, at sea level. So it kind of feels when you when you're riding at that altitude, it feels like you're extremely unfit. Uh, if you take six months off the bike and then you get on the bike for the first time and you go up a hill, you're kind of gasping for air, uh, you have no power, you feel really slow. And uh, that's what it's like when you ride uh, at 5,000 meters with half the amount of oxygen available. The body just um, can't work as, as hard and, and as fast. Um, so it's, um, you just, you really have, you have to slow down and ride quite conservatively. And um, you've got to make sure that you don't um, go into your uh, anaerobic zone. If you, if you push too hard, the body takes a long time to, to recover. So um, yeah. you can very easily, you're riding along and then you're like, oh, I'll just, I'll just sprint for that sign coming up there. And then you get out of the saddle and you do three or four uh, revolutions and, and you're completely out of breath, uh, like as if you've you know, sprinted against Marcel Kittel or something like that. <laughs> and then it takes you a good five minutes to, to get your breath back and, and to recover. So um, it's, uh, it's a very unusual place to, to ride a bike, um, and the altitude makes you feel like you're on another planet um, with, all of those, with all those effects. So, um, yeah, that in itself is an interesting cycling experience, um, you know, riding with half the available altitude, uh, half the available oxygen. But it's, it's manageable if you um, if you take it easy and you're very conservative conservative in the way that you use your your energy. Are you watching your heart rate then? I mean, is that how you are you are your watts or what? What would you do to to monitor your effort up something like that? Um, what I was doing is yeah, looking at my heart rate, but just I was just trying um, to be almost to ride as slow as I could um, mm. because I knew that. If I was going at a nice, slow, uh, sustainable pace, that I could keep going on for as many hours as I needed to. So I was just taking it really easy, listening to my breathing, um, and just trying to um, concentrate on on being relaxed and uh, and not using too much energy. So nice and steady. So the road you were on, just to, to make it clear to everybody, when, when you did this Everstein trip the, the first time and, and the second time, it's the same road, is about 1K, is that correct? And it, it looks like it's maybe not not crazy steep, like 4 to 5%? Uh, it's, um, yeah, 5%. 5%. And about and, 1K. Uh, the yeah, the segment we chose is just, just uh, it's about one kilometer. And it's the last, uh, it's the last climb, uh, the last section of the climb, just as you come into uh, Rombok Monastery, which is the monastery right next to Everest Base Camp on the Tibetan side of mm. uh, of Everest. So the segment has, I think, one, two, three switchbacks. So um, it's um, and each time you go around one of those switchbacks, you turn around. And there's Everest right there in front of you. You have the mountain right in your frame of view, uh, which is an inspiring way to to spend that many hours on a bike. You never get sick of uh, staring at the north face of Everest. Yeah, it's it's funny because when I I, I spoke with you and and JJ, a little getting ahead of myself, who who eventually succeeded. You both were nearly offended when I was like, did you ever get bored? Because, <laughs> I mean, to do this, you would have had to do it like 170, 677 times. That is that is very hard for anyone sitting in their car or living room to even comprehend, right? Like that many times up and down a 1K climb. But both, but 
both of you, I mean, everybody that has talked about this experience says the same thing that like, what is it about the mountain that is just so uh, magnetic, I guess, for lack of a better term. Yeah, it's, um, it is, it's definitely magnetic. And um, I mean, throughout the day you have the changes in light um, show Everest, a different face of Everest. It almost, it's almost changing every hour. And then you have the changing weather, there's clouds, um, there's always a little bit of rain, sunshine. Um, and it's, it's, it's a very you know, special part of the world. You're there riding and you look up and you're like, oh, wow, that's the highest point on the earth. Um, and you just, you just become fixated by that. And, uh, and each time you come around the corner and see it again, you, you, you think about... Um, there must be, you know, climbers up there at the moment. You think about the yeah. first people who came across Tibet on on horses and camels and how the hell they got there and, and decided <laughs> to climb it and how they worked out how to climb it. There's um, a million things to, to think about um, and to be awe-inspired by as you ride um, up and down in front of this mountain. And, um, you know, I've been there now seven times and, and still when I go there, the first time I see it, each time I have to stand still for a second and uh, it almost brings a tear to my eye. But wow. it's just that uh, place that has a magnetism that's really special. I mean, it's, it's um, you know, as you said, you, you, that road, since you've seen it, you can't get it out of your head. Well, I, I still often wake up, um, first thing I'm thinking about in the morning is, is Everest. Wow. It's, um, it just becomes ingrained in your, uh, in your mind and subconscious. So... Yeah, it's a really it's a really special place to to ride a bike to. So so on your first att- on your first attempt, um, well, let me ask you this: Did you think you would make it that first attempt? I mean, were you did you go into it confidently, thinking that you guys were going to uh, pull the Everest off on Everest? Yeah. So for the first attempt, we had we had no idea. We'd we'd done some research to find out if there was any other endurance activity that lasted you know, 20 to 40 hours at 5,000 meters that we could benchmark against and see, um, you know, what had happened to people. We were extremely worried about altitude sickness um, because uh, altitude sickness um, can sort of creep up on you and if you push your body once you've got altitude sickness, it can very quickly become really serious and people die. I was going to so, say, how uh, risky was this? Were you worried about like pulmonary edema, like cerebral edema? Like it, it can be quite serious, as as you mentioned. Yeah, we were worried about all of it, um, and particularly when you combine it with an Everesting, because it, if you've ever done an Everesting, you know that when you get three quarters of the way through, your brain sort of becomes mush, right. and you can hardly you can hardly walk straight, you can hardly think. And um, those are the same sort of symptoms that you have uh, with high altitude sickness. And, and then you have, on top of that, you have people who are very uh, determined to finish this challenge. They've traveled from around the world and they've spent, yeah. you know, a whole almost two weeks traveling through Tibet to get to Everest. Uh, and they're determined. So that determination um, could easily push them over the edge. And if they go too far, then... Um, you could be in serious trouble. So um, it's a little bit different to to mountain climbing where um, the climbers have oxygen, uh, which uh, if they run into trouble, they can they can get onto oxygen. Mm-hmm. The climbers also sleep regularly um, on their attempts, so they have a chance to rest. Whereas right, this right. challenge was just nonstop. Uh, so we were we were unsure of how it um, would go. Uh, and we, um, we were also unsure what would happen to the body uh, as it became more and more tired with that little amount of oxygen available. How would, how would we be affected? But once we, once we got out there and started uh, on the first attempt, um, we got you know, a, third, a third of the way through it and realized that it was sustainable. And um, on our first attempt, it was the weather that uh, stopped us from, from finishing. It looked we had pretty cold. Wind. It was cold, yeah. It was, um, it was in October, mm-hmm. and um, 
in the evening it was getting to minus five degrees, I think was the coldest. Wow. And there was this horrible, And that's Celsius, horrible, correct? Yes, that's, that's Celsius. Yeah, that's cold. Yeah. And there was this horrible wind coming off the north face of Everest um, that was very strong. So strong, in fact, that at certain points when we were going up uh, up the 5% incline, we had to be out of the saddle uh, climbing just to get over the, wow. the fourth wind. Um, yeah, yeah, so that really slowed us down. It slowed us down and, and sapped a lot of energy. Um, so we were unable to complete the first attempt in the time window that we had uh, scheduled. But after that, we knew it, that it was possible. We knew it would still be a huge feat of endurance to do it, but the, mm-hmm. that it was possible that we didn't we didn't succumb to major altitude problems. Nobody. Nobody fell over and collapsed from um, from the uh, exercise. So I was reasonably confident that we could come back again under better weather conditions and uh, probably complete the challenge. And you were monitoring your uh, blood oxygen saturation, correct? Was everybody That's right, doing that? Yeah. yeah. Um, and how often would you do that? Because I know that that was what Andy, who is the Everstein person, you know, the, the guy that coined Everstein, that's what he was concerned about, right? He seemed to have, like, maybe a predisposition to oxygen sickness, and uh, he was the first to see the blood saturation go go down. Like, how often would you check your numbers? Yeah, we checked our numbers um, every couple of hours. And Andy had been in an altitude chamber in Melbourne um, training before he came to Tibet. Mm-hmm. So when you're in an altitude chamber, um, they're able to simulate the conditions that he would be riding mm-hmm. in uh, at Everest. So he knew then that his blood oxygen saturation levels were were pretty were lower than normal gotcha. in the altitude chamber. So he had a he had a pretty good idea that when he got to altitude that he might have issues. Um, so yeah, when he actually got out and did the first five thousand meter pass. Uh, he, he struggled. He didn't actually succumb to any altitude sickness, but he just wasn't able to perform as well as um, as the others at the high altitude. Right. And then during the attempt, his, his oxygen saturation levels were going way down, and uh, he decided to pull the pin um, pretty early on because he didn't want to get into a, a dangerous position. Quite reasonable. I, uh, quite reasonable. Um so, so the weather got in the way, and, and, and unfortunately, none of you were able to uh, complete the task. So you go back, you regroup, you return with another crew, um, and one of one of whom, JJ, helped me with his last name, Zhao? How, you, how do you pronounce that? Joe. Joe. Uh, ultimately, ultimately succeeded. Um, so tell, tell me a little bit, like, what, I know you gave yourself more time. What else did you do differently this time when you came back to Everest, on Everest the second time? Uh, well, quite a few things. So, first of all, um, we, we changed the season. So, we went um, in the summer season in August, which is the warmest temperature. It also happens to be the rainy season. So, there was a lot of risk of rain and uh, we got some rain at certain points, but the temperature being close to zero compared to, you know, minus five to minus mm-hmm. seven under meant that riding through the night with clothing was, was doable. Uh, so first thing was we picked a different season. Uh, second, we spent um, a lot more time acclimatizing. We landed in Tibet and spent three days in Lhasa basically doing nothing. Mm-hmm. And then... Uh, we rode uh, bits of the the journey from Lhasa to Everest Base Camp, but not too much riding, just uh, sightseeing really, just you know, 40, 50 kilometers a day, um, just enjoying ourselves. So that when we arrived at, at Everest, we were very well rested mm-hmm. and very well uh, acclimated. So um, we were ready for the challenge. And then we, had, um, we have our own uh, special circ, um, our adventure van, which has a coffee machine and music and tools and lights and all sorts of um, gizmos in there. So we had a, a, a good support um, vehicle and a good support team this time, whereas last time uh, we didn't have enough support. 
So the combination of the warmer weather um, being more acclimatised and having better support meant that we had a much better chance of um, making it through. Did you have a gut feeling on this one? Did you did you think that that you were going to do it? Um, I thought um, I thought we had the right team. I mean, we had um, we had in terms of a team, we had a guy um, Mark Blewett from South Africa who has the world record for riding from Cairo to Cape Town across Africa. Wow! And um, he's a an ex pro rider. Um, he's done a lot of uh, serious riding in his life. Um, we had uh, a 60-year-old um, ex-rugby player from the UK who has been around Asia for quite some time, and he's as tough as nails. Uh, and then we had JJ, who was the, the young gun. JJ was 24, um, an ex-rower, very fit, very focused on um, his you know nutrition plans and numbers and... Um, I knew that he had uh, the ability to be able to complete it. And then we had um, another rider from the UK who's done quite a few Everestings um, and, uh, and, and myself. I was also going to try the, the attempt and I've you know, been at altitude many times and um, did the previous attempt so I knew what I was up for. So I knew that someone in that team would, would be able to do it because uh, they were they were pretty prepared and also um, ready for the sort of challenges that, that doing something on the frontiers uh, exposes you to. So how did you, I mean, it, there's, so, there's so many, it, it ended up being about 40 hours total and, and 26 and a half of, of active time. What are you What are you feeding yourself? How are you staying hydrated? I, it's, uh, do you take any prolonged breaks? Like, it it just it's it boggles the mind of of because I mean at some point your stomach just doesn't want anything after I don't know ten hours, right? I mean I've done these long things where it, you, everything starts shutting down. How do you keep, especially at that kind of altitude? Like, what is that like? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the nutrition strategy was important. Um, we were lucky that um, only a kilometre away from the segment there was a, uh, a guest house. Uh, and that guest house was able to make us fried rice and noodles and uh, some hot tea and also provide us with hot water. So part of the nutrition strategy was to have uh, meals, regular meals at regular meal times, oh, and then in between, in between have uh, have your energy snacks, bananas, um, and uh, energy bars, and and so on. I mean, each rider had their own nutrition strategy, um, and I mean, I remember we were in Lhasa and we went to the supermarket and we bought out half a truckload of food to uh, <laughs> to supply everyone. And uh, our support vehicle was half full of food, and the other half was was cycling kit, you know, arm warmers and shoe covers, and and this winter jacket, that winter jacket. Um, so we had a lot of a lot of food there for the riders to consume. And JJ had problems towards the end; uh, he just couldn't eat anything in the last couple of hours. Uh, yeah. He was really struggling to to down any of the food that he bought with him. So. Um, we gave him some natural food. He had some bread and peanut butter, and I think we had some fried rice for him. That was his last meal, and that got him across the line just. Um, but it is really difficult for the body to to go through eating that amount of eating that amount of food over and over and over again. Yeah, especially like as the day goes on and you're getting less and less blood flow into the gut, right? Because your your body's just trying to power you through. It's it's a monumental it's a monumental task. I mean, you think about people who just do Ironman, right? And that kind of level of stuff that that's the hardest piece for for many people. Um, so how long I how what how long was each uh, trip up and down for you? Like how long was each each lap? Oh, I think the, each lap to climb was around about six or seven minutes mm-hmm. going up. And then going down about half that half that time, um, so you know two or three minutes going down each lap, 
So the riders would typically ride, um, you know, five or, or ten laps and then stop for a break. Right, um, right. that makes sense. Yeah, we had support vehicle there. We had a, our van had a coffee machine, so we were handing out uh, fresh lattes and uh, and um, Americanos um, halfway in between the laps, so riders would request this and that, and we'd bring it out to them as they got to the top. So, um, yeah, I mean, when you get into a challenge like that, in the last um, in the last one quarter, the support is so important because you can say, hardly... What is, like, the lowest point? Like, where, where is the darkest hour there in something like that? Well, the darkest hours are usually um, in the last third, especially when it's... Uh, it's dark and it's cold, yeah. and you're you know you're riding you're riding through the dark. You're you're freezing. You're wondering what you're doing there, um, and then you know sometimes little things happen, like you might hit a small rock on the road and, and wobble a little bit and almost fall over, and then um, the adrenaline kicks in and you you wake up again. Um, but it's the it's usually the the mind numbingness of of just going and going and going and looking at at the number of laps that you still have to go, thinking, "Wow, I still have a hundred kilometers, hundred kilometers of riding left," or you know, two thousand meters of climbing, or something like that. It seems um, such big uh, obstacles to overcome. But that's where I mean, having support is so important. So, in the last five hours with JJ, we took it in turns to ride up and down with him and um, talk about his. Uh, you know, his first girlfriend and spend a lap talking about that. And then that's the next lap. We were counting the number of pedal rotations it takes to get up and guessing it, how many it would take to get down and just anything to distract them from uh, right. the, the, the numbers and the riding and, and just keep them moving forward. Yeah, that, that's, that's awesome because it is at that point completely mental, right? It's just a completely mental, a mental game. Um, it's, it's funny, you know, we, we had spoken for, for an article that I did with you and JJ on this and he sounded like such a transformed man. I, it was so fascinating to listen to him so humbled and humble and, uh, you know, he kept talking about actualization and nirvana. Uh, did you see that transformation happen in him? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the same thing, the same thing happened to me. And um, almost everyone who takes our trip, um, our, our cycling trip to Everest, once they get to Everest Base Camp, uh, they hug each other and there's a tear. And mm-hmm. it's um, that experience of riding through Tibet is quite a transformative experience. And it always starts out in the same sort of way. Uh, you have everyone who spent, uh, you know, a couple of months training. And they're all concerned about the altitude but confident in their fitness. And so they go out on the first day and they smash it. Yeah. Uh, and then they get, you know, a third of the way up um, one of the big first passes and then they immediately can feel the altitude and start to then worry that they're going to keel over and die. <laughs> um, and then they're like, okay, right, now I understand altitude. And... And through that experience, you realize that in this part of the world that nature is king. Uh, It doesn't matter how hard you push, you're not going to get, you're not going to defeat altitude. You can't just keep pushing through like you would at sea level. If it's raining, you know, you put on your jacket, you put your head down, you keep pedaling, you get through it. And there's a a feeling of of having bested the elements when you cycle sometimes. But here in Tibet, you don't get that. And all of a sudden, you feel humbled by nature and you feel, hey, Actually, nature is uh, is king here, and then you have all the Tibetan people who, um, you know, Buddhism is is the predominant knowledge, uh, predominant religion. Um, mm-hmm. You're going past these temples and you're seeing all these amazing um, landscapes and vistas, and you just all of a sudden this, this sort of emotion comes over you where you feel um, grateful, you feel lucky you feel amazed to be able to be riding through these landscapes and appreciating the 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 beauty and then those kind of fast riders are stopping and taking photos and talking to people and they sort of transform in, from becoming a hardcore um 
racing dude or dudess and, and in, in into a more of a uh, kind of caring, uh, you know, nature-loving cyclist. Yeah, And then yeah. when you get to... You get to Everest Space Camp, and there it is. The Everest is there, and um, it has such an appeal and such an attraction that um, you, you you become overwhelmed with with emotion. And I mean, it's it's definitely part of that is from the uh, the high altitude and what it does, the lack, what that lack of oxygen does to uh, your system. Um, but it's also because of traveling through such amazing landscape and through an amazing culture as well. So, um, yeah, I could see that um, after JJ uh, had spent a first, his first couple of days in Tibet, I could see that he was starting to have that experience. And, um, and then, you know, in, on the actual Everest attempt, after his 100th lap, uh, he stopped for a rest and he just burst into tears. Uh-huh. Uh, the emotions sort of overcome him because we, were, we had good weather and um, it looked like it was going to be possible that he could finish the attempt, and he was just overcome with emotion. Yeah, but so that's, it, um, that's, it was moving, talking to him, and 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 and, and when when daybreak came, and and Everest showed herself as as he said, you know, and, and just how moved he was by that. It was just it was it was moving, listening to him talk about it. Yeah, absolutely. It's um, it's a very very special very special place. And I, I've recently been reading um, some stories about some of the first uh, foreigners who went to Tibet to, to try and climb Everest. And interestingly, they had very similar experiences. Um, there was a, there was a, a general in the, the British army who went in into Lhasa to, to conquer. And uh, he left um, after actually taking Lhasa, they left, uh, they left Tibet. Um, he left Tibet a spiritual man. He said, and um, mm-hmm. I can totally relate to that. Uh, so it's um, yeah. There's something about that place, and it definitely has to do with the, with the high altitude and the and the uniqueness of the the landscape and the, and the culture, which uh, is sort of a transformative experience. Yeah, but um, it's it's funny you 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 keep, I, I, and maybe I'm I'm misinterpreting you, so you can tell me if I'm wrong. But I, I feel like there's there's a bit of maybe your your scientific mind saying that this mystical experience has to do with the alteration in brain with the high altitude, but but yet it's still this mystical experience that you have in this in this place, right? Like I'm I'm, I'm trying to sort of tease out, like you still feel the same way when you come back to sea level, though, correct? About what you just experienced? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's it's um. It's a it's it's a hard thing. I mean, it's a hard thing to explain. I mean, when we when our trip starts, um, the first thing that we say to our guests is, there's a Tibetan saying that um, if you have good harmony in the group, um, and if you have good harmony on your journey to Everest, you'll see uh, you'll see Everest. If you don't have harmony, if there's if there's tension, if there's um, negative energy, then uh, probably Everest is going to be shrouded in clouds and, and you won't see it. And everyone looks at you like, wow, are you, are you some sort of spiritual shaman or, you know, we're just here to ride our bikes. What's all this uh, spirituality right. all about? And um, and the first time I heard it, I went, oh, yeah, okay, whatever. Um, but um, one year, actually, we had, a, we had a group where there was um, a little bit of um, – uh, there wasn't so much cohesion, and sure enough, we we didn't see Everest. Wow! Um, and every, every other trip we've done, um, we've had a good, good, really good harmony and um, in the group, and we've we've seen Everest every time. Um, so it's 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 true to some extent. So there is a there is a real mysticism there, and yeah, um, yeah I, I I'm a strong believer in it, but um, for many other people, it's uh, it's. You have to go there and experience it to to, to understand it. But um, I guess as cyclists, we all understand uh, this this feeling, this transformative feeling of, of riding a bike. I mean, right. if you ride a bike anywhere in the world, you have a rhythm, um, uh, you know, through your pedaling. And if you go on a long climb, um, it's very meditative. And mm-hmm. I think for 
for me, riding a bike is also a great way to, to clear my head, um, to you know, bring a smile to my face. And it is a kind of, you know, it's sort of a type of religion um, and it has the yeah. same sorts of effects that a, that a, that a spiritual um, practice does. And so it's, um, to me, riding in Tibet is, um, is a place where you really connect all of that together. When you go there, you ride a bike um, in such a, an interesting and spiritual place, you really feel that, um, you know, that riding a bike is a, is a spiritual experience. That that's yeah that's that's awesome and and, and that leads me to uh, maybe my final question for you is, is you know you've done this and then you're not going to try another Everest or are you going to try another Everest like where where are you now like what the Cirque Adventures offer Everstain on Everest or is that something that you just you're putting check it's done and and now we seek new adventures where what what's what's on the horizon. Yeah, well, we um, we organise um, four trips a year to to Everest, which is just a regular thirteen day trip where gotcha. um, for anyone who's a, who's a road biker who wants to ride to Everest Base Camp. So um, we have the next one of those this weekend, and then we have oh. four more next year. And I, it's a little too uh, soon so for me I'll to get be, there. Be, <laughs> yeah, I'll be back at Everest um, in about uh, fifteen days time. Um, and then uh, next year, we're also doing um, some gravel riding in Central Asia. Mm. We just did a trip to Kyrgyzstan, 13 days on, on gravel um, through the most amazing uh, countryside. Wow. Uh, um, spectacular scenery, nomadic herders, um, no, no internet, no telephone service, just uh, you, your bike, and the, and the open road. And um, in terms of challenges, we've, well, last night we, we were talking with a bunch of friends about um, what we could do at high altitude because because of the thin air, uh, you're able to go considerably faster. Mm-hmm. So um, 80% of your power when you're pedaling a bike um, is used to overcome the air density, the, the air resistance. Mm-hmm. So. At uh, 5,000 meters altitude, you have roughly half of the air density. So we thought maybe it would be interesting to go there and attempt some sort of um, speed or distance records uh, on, on, on the flat road somewhere because not many people have, have ridden bikes at, at 5,000 meters because there's not many wow. places in the world where you can do it. So it has me thinking that maybe we can go and try another uh, different type of, of endurance challenge there that um, – that uses the special air conditions um, to to give us an advantage over sea level. So, wow, that's interesting. That's it's, it's, it's interesting because it dovetails with another story I'm working on right now, which is the uh, there's a woman uh, going. She's in Bonneville Flats in Utah, trying to break the paced speed bicycle record where they where they're pulled behind the dragster, you know, that giant gear ratio, and then uh, the they let go of the tether and they have to keep it. They go, they go magnificent speeds. It's like 160 miles an hour. She's trying to get 175 miles an hour. Uh, very sea wow. level. But, but, um, but I think that you, that that could not be done there because of the altitude. I mean, you, you, you have the air resistance is gone, but you, you still like the exertion would be limiting. Correct. I mean, it would just be probably hard to. Yeah. Well, well we worked out, I mean, JJ, FTP was 35% lower than at sea level. Um, yeah. But if the air, if the air uh, density is 50%, um, then there is some math to be done, which we have to do over the next week. That's it true. may end up being around about, you know, five to 10% of an advantage. Um, and for the right the right type of athlete, that might be enough to get a to get a record. Um, so yeah, we have to. Sit down with a physicist and uh, work out the math to see if it, it makes sense. Because although you have a lack of oxygen um, at uh, at those altitudes, you can still produce some okay wattage. It's all about being sustainable. Right. And um, if you climatize for a long time, um, you can push you can push those watts up. So um, with the with the advantage of the 
of the lower air density, that might be enough um, for, a, for ultra endurance uh, challenges where um, you know, the, the distance and length is the important capacity. So right. anyway, we are, we're thinking about it and um, that might end up being something we look into for next year. Cool. Well, I uh, I am fascinated. I'm 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 slightly obsessed, and who knows? Maybe maybe you'll see me in uh, in Tibet sometime <laughs> in the in the. Uh, We'd love to have that? you out here. You're welcome to uh, yeah. welcome to come out and do a trip. It's a really great place to to travel to. Yeah, it looks amazing. It looks it looks truly amazing, and I. I was super happy to to share your story and and I'm glad that you were able to take some time again to uh to tell people just just what it's about like what it's like to to just be on Everest let alone to Everest on Everest and to travel these magnificent places that are that are so different from what that most of us see any time in our life right it's a, it's a great experience Yeah Excellent Thanks thanks for having me on the show Thank you, and uh, best of best of luck with all with all of your ventures with with everything that you do. Okay, thanks, Elaine. I want to thank our guest Shannon Bufton for joining me on the Paceline Tandem. You can learn more about him and his amazing adventures, and there are many amazing adventures at his cycling company's website, Cirque.cc. That's S-E-R-K.cc. Just don't blame me if you end up buying plane tickets to Tibet. You might find me there. Also check out the show notes at redkiteprayer.com for a link to an interview I did with him and JJ for bicycling.com about their successful Everesting on Everest. Be sure to download our episode next week when I interview Iraq War veteran Sarah Lee, who rode across the country to reconnect with the people and the land she defended rather than, in her words, end her life. She's an amazing spirit with what I think is a pretty important message. That's a wrap for this show. I hope you've enjoyed it. And if you have, I hope you leave the show a good review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next week, I'm Celine Yeager, inviting you all to enjoy the ride. Thanks for listening to The Pace Line.